I have some friends through the years who work in the corporate world, and if you've ever worked in the corporate world, you know the, the blessings and the curses that go along with that. Um, <laughs> one, I've got quite a few friends, actually, that, that are in the corporate world, and uh, usually their complaints are very similar. And uh, one in particular, one man in particular, said that he is frustrated at the inefficiency of the uh, primarily the CEO, but also of just of how it all trickles down throughout the organization. But the department, for example, would like work on some project or whatever the particular product was that they're working on, and they'd work on it for sometimes months, only have to have the whole thing shelved, or uh, they'd go to a meeting and they'd spend an hour talking about something and nothing's really resolved. And just this huge waste of time and inefficiency. And when they began to do the, he said one time he was sitting there and doing the mental math of what all of the different salaries cost of the people. I think he was in HR, and so he knew pretty much what everyone was making around the room. And he did the mental math, and he thought, you know, this, this meeting that's, that's doing nothing is costing us thousands and thousands of dollars. And uh, on many occasions, they would he he would just exp- express to me his frustration that the that the uh, the missed deadlines and the back orders and the customer service is all from the inefficiency of the way the organization is run. And if you've ever been in something like that, you can appreciate the frustration of it. Well, inefficiency is tough for those of us who hate to waste time. I'm one of those who hates to waste time. I mean. I really don't like it. Like when I make a doctor's appointment, I will make the very first appointment so that it'll maybe be on time, you know, and I don't have to count the fish in the aquarium, in the waiting room, things like that. And what, and what a name, waiting room. That's a, sort of a metaphor for our whole lives, isn't it? The waiting room. Well, I, I finished a book not long ago called Time Smart. It was a pretty interesting book that basically just boils down a bunch of research that says that people who value time more than money typically have a better quality of life. And that filters into so many things as far as your values. But I thought about the Apostle Paul's command to both the Ephesians and the Colossians where he told them to redeem the time. That's sort of the the literal translation of it. I think the more uh, modern renderings of it say making the most of your time or uh, using your time effectively. But it basically is a financial term that means buy your time, buy out the time, make the, the very most of the time that God's given you. Don't waste any of it. And it's neat that the Spirit of God inspired that, But then it becomes very confusing when the Spirit of God leads us in ways that seem terribly inefficient. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in life, but having having the Lord lead you in a way that you think, you know, if the goal is to get from here to there, God, why are we going there? Why are we going far left? Why are we making a hard left turn if the goal is to go straight ahead? This is how our Lord works sometimes, and we see it in the Scripture, and thankfully we also come to understand why the Lord leads us in these zigzag ways. Let's look together at the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 10. Book of Acts, chapter 10. We're continuing in the series where we take a single message from each of the 66 books of the Bible. The book of Acts is such a wonderful book to draw from. Uh, 
It's sort of like walking in the supermarket, or I should say walking down the candy aisle of the supermarket and just getting to pick your favorite candy. I mean, any place that we land in the book of Acts would be a wonderful place to spend time in. But we're going to look at two different events that occurred in the life of two different apostles, Peter and Paul, and the similarities of those things as it relates to God's inefficiency if we can call it that, in our lives. We won't look there, but you're probably familiar with the first chapter of Acts, where in verse 8, the Lord Jesus outlines the Great Commission in geographical terms. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost ends of the earth. If you think about it, the Lord Jesus mentioned the Great Commission at the end of every gospel, that is, if you take the long version of Mark, and also at the book of Acts. So he mentioned it a number of times to them. This wasn't just a one-and-done commission. He mentioned it a number of times. And the, uh, the apostles, initially, when they began to share the gospel the, in Pentecost, when Peter gave that great sermon, the church was the Jews. And that was it. I mean, the early, when Jesus said that the church begins in Jerusalem, I mean, it begins with Jews. It begins with with Jesus' inner circle, but it didn't stay there. It broadened out to Judea and Samaria. So now we're sort of bringing in Jews, sort of half-Jews, and then to the the ends of the earth, now all of a sudden, you know, the, the doors are wide open to Gentiles. And in Acts chapter 10, this is where the pivot occurs for the Gentiles. And he does it, the Lord does it, in a very inefficient way. Look at chapter 10. Let's start right there in verse 1. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius! And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. So in order for Cornelius to hear the gospel, the angel, the angel didn't say, by the way, this man's going to tell you the gospel, but we know that's what's going to happen. Uh, Cornelius has to dispatch some people to go to Joppa. And Joppa is south, about 35 miles south of Caesarea. And this is before the, the, the days of cell phones or the internet or email or texting. And they didn't even have uh, trains to hop on or cars to get in. This is walking, or this is riding an animal, and at best, you can make maybe 20 miles a day. So this is about a four-day journey, round trip, before uh, Cornelius gets to hear whatever this message is that the Lord wants him to hear. And it just sort of strikes me as inefficient on a couple of levels. First, and, and of course, you know, when I say that God's inefficient, I'm not saying anything negative about the Lord. I'm just saying it's odd from our perspective why God does what he does. First of all, the angel could have given the message to Cornelius. I mean, they're right there. 
They're talking, they're having the conversation. An angel has told people about Jesus before, like with Zacharias, like with Mary, like with the shepherds. So, hey, start the Gentiles the same way. Why go get this guy named Peter? So there's inefficiency number one. Inefficiency number two, keep your finger here in Acts 10 and turn back a page or two to Acts chapter 8, the very last verse, verse 40. Acts 8, verse 40. We read, But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Philip was in Caesarea. Now, flip to the end of Acts, or toward the end of Acts, to chapter 21. Not really the end, but it's a ways away. Look at Acts 21, verse 8. Acts 21, verse 8. It says, On the next day we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. So, now turn back to Acts 10. So we're in Acts 10, and I'm going to just share something profound with you. Acts 10 is between Acts 8 and Acts 21, which means Philip was at Caesarea. Not only that, Philip was an evangelist. And what do evangelists do? They evangelize. They share the gospel. How inefficient. Why go four days' journey down to Joppa to get Peter when you've got a resident evangelist right there in Caesarea? This is how God works. The answer is because God wanted to do more than simply change Cornelius' life. God wanted to change Peter's life. Acts chapter 10, let's continue. Uh, look, look down at verse 10. This is uh, talking about Peter now in Joppa. It says, But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air, a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. So God shows Peter a number of unclean animals. These are the Leviticus animals that are unkosher, we might say today. These are the no-no animals. These are the animals that you don't eat. And there's a whole sheet full of them, and Jesus tells Peter, eat them. And Peter's like, whoa, no way, I have never done anything like that. By the way, this is not the first time Peter's told Jesus no. Uh, remember up in Caesarea Philippi, interesting, it's also called Caesarea. Up in Caesarea Philippi, uh, Jesus had told Peter about, you know, he's going to die, that, that Jesus is going to die. And Peter says, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. 
So whenever there's something that Jesus tells Peter that's against what Peter thinks, but here, rightly so, this has been God's law for centuries. And now Jesus is saying, eat these animals. And Peter says, no. And then Jesus makes the statement, what I have, uh, what I have cleansed no longer consider unclean. In other words, we're making a change. And so Peter is scratching his head over why all of a sudden he can have bacon for breakfast. He doesn't understand that. Well, at that very moment, the, Peter, the people from Cornelius' house show up to get Peter. These sacrificial animals were, in the Old Testament, they represented things. Like, for example, the unclean animals in the Old Testament represented pagan nations. The clean animals represented Israel. Um, the sacrificial animals represented the priests. And these foods illustrated these various peoples, and they basically facilitated or required or caused a separation among these peoples. For example, if you were told not to eat bacon for breakfast, if you didn't know how wonderful it was to have bacon for breakfast, you would not have that craving. You wouldn't have the desire. You wouldn't know to have the desire. Maybe another uh, way, a better way to say it is, if you didn't like Italian food, you would not go to an Italian restaurant. And here's the benefit, Italian gods would not affect you. So it wasn't really about food as much as it was the Lord used food. He used acquired taste to keep his people distinct so that they would not go off and get involved with other gods. So when here in Acts 10, the Lord removes those scruples and now says all foods are clean, what, what is he also saying? You can now go to the nations. It, it, it's a pivot and Pentecost also gave that implication with God's people being able to speak all languages. It was sort of a reversal of the Tower of Babel, and that, that Babel's purpose was to keep the nation separated, removing that barrier with the gift of languages, some call the gift of tongues, was uh, the ability now for God's people to go into the nations and to share the gospel with them. So Peter's processing all this. And as he was doing this, he comes to this conclusion. He goes, he, he understands, he goes to Cornelius' house back up in Caesarea. Look down at verse 28. Here is what God taught Peter. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet, God has shown me that I should not call any man unclean or unholy or unclean. See, this is the meaning of the, the vision. Jesus had said, don't consider the food unholy or unclean. Peter got it. Aha, I'm not to consider a Gentile unholy or unclean. Peter got the lesson. See, the Lord was not only working to bring the good news to Cornelius, the Lord was working in Peter. A couple of principles from our text today, and the first one we've gotten from the text so far, and this is it. God's purpose for us includes the journey, not just the destination. God's purpose for us includes the journey, not just the destination. For you and me, the shortest route between two points is a straight line. That's because our goal is to get there. 
Our goal is not the process of getting there. Our goal is to get there. Like if we're, we set out on a journey, we don't, you know, we don't enjoy the journey. We enjoy the arrival. But God's goal is our sanctification. We don't actually get there in God's mind until rapture or death. So God's goal for our life is not perfection, but it is progression. It is sanctification. Think about the Hebrews coming out of Egypt for a minute. When the Hebrews came out of Egypt, their goal was the promised land. The promised land, though, only a two-week journey, it took them 40 years to get there. God's purpose for his people was not just to go from A to B, but was what happened in the process of going from A to B, and it's the same with us. For us, we see the shortest distance between two points as a straight line. God sees the two points as who we are and who we'll be. And the shortest distance is whatever is the most effective process to get us there. And that is a zigzag in our lives. It's often a zigzag. It's not a straight line. It's a growth of character, not just a progress of geography. So Peter is learning that God works through us. God not just works through us, but works in us. So Cornelius is ready to hear the message, but Peter wasn't yet ready to give the message. Something had to happen in Peter's life, and that was God working in him. Interestingly, God had been preparing for this meeting for centuries, if you think about it. His love for the Gentiles is all throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Genesis 12 with regard to the Abrahamic covenant. Through you, all nations will be blessed. We see it through various prophets like Nahum, like Jonah, God sending them to Gentile nations. We also, interesting, Jonah was also a Joppa, which is sort of a, a neat uh, connection. And I, I love also that one of the Gentiles that Jesus encountered was from Peter's hometown of, of uh, Capernaum, and it was a Roman centurion, just like Cornelius. In fact, Jesus used that occasion of that man's faith to say that many would come from among the Gentiles to join the Jews in the kingdom of God. So Cornelius was ready to receive the salvation. Peter wasn't quite ready to bring it. And so the lesson that we mentioned, that I mentioned, God's purpose for us includes the journey, not just the destination. And here's something else. You may think, Lord, I'm ready. I mean, you've prepared me. I'm ready for whatever is the next season in my life. I, I can't see anything uh, major that, that you're working on right now. I'm just sort of hovering. I'm just sort of waiting. I'm treading water for you to open the door. Well, that's where Cornelius was. But an integral part of the plan was also Peter. It may be that in your life you are ready, but that the Lord is getting someone else ready so that you can move forward in God's plan for you. That's the way it was with Cornelius. Cornelius was ready. Peter wasn't ready. Cornelius had to wait on Peter. It may be the same way in your life. You may be doing all you need to do but God's waiting for somebody else to come alongside you, and they're not ready yet. God prepares all sides, not just our side. Well, Peter later explains to the church in Jerusalem uh, this event. And if you turn to chapter 11, we won't read chapter 11, but I don't know if you've noticed, but chapter 11 is like almost a blow-by-blow -blow rehash of chapter 10. It's like, why in the world do we have to repeat all these details? We just read it in Acts 10. Because Acts 10 and 11 are such 
an important pivot in God's plan or such an important expansion of God's plan of the gospel going out to the nations. Chapter 11 is Peter's justification that, yes, God really is involved. Look down at verse 17. Acts eleven seventeen. Now he is basically giving the justification before the Jerusalem leaders why he did what he did. Peter says, Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. That, that phrase, that verse, is the point of Acts 10 and 11. This is the goal for the, for the church to realize, the Jewish church to realize, that now the church is not just a Jewish church. It is a church involved with Gentiles as well. It's a mix. So, if you just glance down really at the very next verse, we won't read it, but the rest of that chapter now begins the pivot of the church in Antioch. In Antioch, which is just north of Jerusalem, quite a bit north. It's in modern Turkey today, and uh, it's a, uh, it was the home base of the church for the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, which the text immediately gets into as... Uh, as Acts pivots into that. So turn, if you would, now to chapter 16, and let's look at one of these missionary journeys and how it relates to our subject of God's inefficiency. The Apostle Paul begins his second missionary journey here in Acts chapter 16, leaves Antioch and sails from its port of Seleucia, or actually, no, he did that on the first one. On this one, he heads north from Antioch and uh, by foot travels into, uh, into Turkey, what we know today as Turkey, modern Turkey. But Acts 16, uh, we'll start in verse 6. When um, the, the verses prior to this that we're not reading just talk about how Paul works his way through this area and comes to Lystra, and he and Silas pick up Timothy. And so the three of them journey on. Verse 6, They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. Now keep your hand there in Acts 16 and turn back to your maps. Hopefully, you've got a map that shows something of the journeys of Paul. And uh, I apologize ahead of time for your publisher. You probably didn't do a great job on the map. Bible maps in the back aren't the great. I hope you have an atlas. An atlas is really good. An atlas would be great for you to bring to class every time. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, when you're reading your Bible at home, though, I mean, look, look through these things. These, these uh, places aren't just mentioned for interest and to add spice to the steak. Sometimes they give us great insight. But if you found your Paul's journeys, usually all three are stuck on one map, like the one I've got here in front of me. And so just find whatever represents the second missionary journey. For me, it's a red line. For you, it might be something else. But it begins at Antioch. To find Antioch, I don't know if you can locate Jerusalem, if you're that map savvy, but if you can see, obviously, the Mediterranean Sea, it's that big blue thing. Uh, 
If you look to the far east and the north shore, you will see Antioch. Antioch is where the journey began, and then he walks. If you follow your second missionary journey to the west, you see it goes through Tarsus, through Derby, through Lystra, where he picks up uh, Timothy, and then Iconium. And then we pick up what we read, that he heads north and he tries to go into Asia, but the Lord won't let him. Then he tries to enter Bithynia, and the Lord won't let him, and he makes a sharp turn to the left. you see that? And then he lands at Troas, which is right there on the coast. So get that picture in your mind and then turn back to Acts 16. I don't know if it strikes you as strange, but it does strike me as strange how here we've got the great apostle Paul following God's will. Here, here I am, Lord. You know, I'm ready to serve you. I'm eager to serve you. Let's go. And he goes into an area that needs the gospel. And the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit says, no, you can't speak the word in Asia. Okay. And so they move on and they try to go to Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus didn't permit them. No, you can't go into Bithynia. It's like, well, wait a minute. Lord, you're stopping the very thing that you're asking us to do. And then all of a sudden, verse 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. Suddenly, it is as if Paul's team heard the door unlock. The door had slammed shut at Asia. The door had slammed shut at Bithynia. They're scratching their heads going, Lord, don't you want us to share the gospel? And he says, yes, I want you to do it in Europe. So they crossed over and they left Asia and they crossed over and they went into Europe. And they landed at a port that today is called Kavala in modern Greece. Uh, back then it was called Neapolis. And a beautiful port there at uh, the eastern end of Europe. And then a very short walk from there along a road called the Via Ignatia takes them to the city of Philippi. The Via Ignatia. And I don't know if you noticed the, uh, the pronoun in verse 11 changes where it says, so putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course. It, it used to be Paul did this, Paul did that, they did this, they did that, and now, now the author is saying we. So somehow Luke has joined the party here uh, Troas, and he is now part of the missionary journey. We aren't told why, but it's just sort of a subtle addition that Luke's now part of the deal. And they, they walk along the Via Ignatia until they get to Philippi. And it's wonderful. If you go to, uh, to Greece today, there is actually a portion of this road, the ancient Roman road that you can walk on. And, you know, it just kind of gives you some warm fuzzies to stand there and go, Paul walked right here. <laughs> Silas walked right here and Luke, as they were making their way to Philippi. And when they get to Philippi, look what happens. Verse 13, 
On the Sabbath day, we went outside to a gate, to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So in this nearby city of Philippi, the doors opened wide. The doors that had slammed in Paul's face in Asia and in Bithynia, once they get to Europe, now all of a sudden the doors are open wide. They open wide, and God opens the heart of Lydia, opens her heart, and she believes, which is a great insight into how people get converted. It's not just hearing the truth, but it's the Holy Spirit opening their heart to do it. So we don't just share the truth, but we also pray that God will open the eyes of their heart to believe And God did that with Lydia. We won't read it, but the text goes on to show how God opened the the prison doors, as it were, of the heart of, of a Philippian jailer. And he, too, believed. So it's like rapid fire conversions now. What had been locked doors now were doors open wide. Well, that's great, Lord. You know, I mean, Europe needs the gospel. That's great. But what about Asia and Bithynia? You know, you slam the door on them. Don't they need the gospel as well? Absolutely. You can leave Acts now and turn to 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter. It was just a matter of timing. For the doors would blow open in a few years to Asia and Bithynia as well. Um, In fact, on Paul's uh, third missionary journey, Paul would even live in Asia For several years, he lived at Ephesus, which was a key city in Asia. Um, He would write to key cities in Asia, the book of Ephesians. He wrote the book of Colossians and also a letter to Laodicea, assuming it's a different letter than Ephesians. So God does care about this area. But notice also 1 Peter, right in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, look here, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God the Father had Asia and Bithynia in the plan all along. It wasn't that it wasn't God's will, it's just that it wasn't God's timing. God used Peter to minister to this uh, this very area. And it gets even better than that. Turn to the last chapter, 1 Peter 5, and look at a particular verse there. 1 Peter 5, verse 12. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. You know who Silvanus is? Silas. The very Silas who got the door slammed in his face when he was walking with the Apostle Paul. And I love that because the Lord not only shows that when the door is slammed in front of Paul's face, 
Timothy's face and Silas's face, each one of these men in the short years to come will have the opportunity to directly minister to that very area that before the door was slammed shut. Paul got to live in Ephesus. He wrote, he wrote to Ephesus. He wrote to Colossae. Timothy was the pastor in Ephesus and received two letters from Paul, First and Second Timothy, while he was there in Ephesus. And Silas helped the apostle Peter write First Peter to that area and probably delivered the letter, which meant that he got to go there himself. So it's a wonderful sense of justification and fulfillment for these men who before were scratching their head, Lord, why won't you let us in, to be able to go back and for them to go, oh, it was timing. You wanted Europe to have the gospel first before Asia and Bithynia. Well, here's the second principle, if it isn't already obvious, and it's this. Closed doors merely represent an essential part of God's plan to move us forward. Sounds like it doesn't make sense, but it's the truth. Closed doors merely represent an essential part of God's plan to move us forward. Think back in your own life at all the closed doors that God has given you. And then in hindsight, you realize that wasn't a closed door just to stop me. It was a closed door to redirect me to, the, to where the Lord wanted me to go. I think in my own life back years ago, gosh, I guess it was 17 plus years ago now, well, I was between ministries and was at that time seeking a pastorate. And five months, I don't know if you've ever been looking for a job, but when you're looking for a job and five months roll by, you begin to wonder, Lord, why are all these doorknobs that I'm turning locked? Finally found the perfect church up in Chicago, went up there, and it was while I was teaching that I got this overwhelming sense from the Lord. It was my most charismatic moment ever in life. I don't know that that'll ever happen again. But it was almost like the Lord saying, see the perfect church? This is not what I want you to do. Two days later, is when I had my interview at Insight for Living, and it was very clear that that's where he wanted me. And it was a very, very fruitful ministry for about 12 years. But all of the locked doors was not God saying, no, I, I reject you. It was him saying, no, I am directing you. And if you'll just hang on, I will show you. And maybe I was ready. Maybe it needed uh, insight to be ready. Who knows what, what was the delay, just like in Peter's case. And it may be that way in your life right now. You may be thinking, Lord, I'm ready to move on. And we can all point to COVID and say that, can't we? We are done with this locked door. We want to go back overseas. I want to lead tours to Israel. I want to be able, you want to be able to do what COVID has not allowed you to do. Why is the door locked, Lord? And we, we can say, as we look at this path, these passages with Peter and Paul, we can understand that the closed doors merely represent an essential part of God's plan to move us forward. God's moving us forward. We don't see it. We don't feel it. But we believe it because that's how our God operates. Sometimes it seems that God gets in the way of doing the very thing he's commanded us to do. Don't you want the gospel in Asia? Don't you want the gospel in Bithynia? Yes, but I want the gospel in Europe first. It's got part of God's plan. And that means, very practically speaking, that the biblical passions that we have for our lives 
we're going to occasionally bump up against locked doors. You may be doing everything right, and the door slams in your face. Um, Maybe it's a job search. Maybe it's a relationship that stays strained. Maybe it's a ministry effort that just won't move forward. Maybe it's a job search that lands nowhere. Maybe it's a close friend who refuses to change their stubbornness. These closed doors can really confuse our spiritual lives because it seems to contradict the will of God. Doesn't God want relationships to mend? Doesn't God want ministry to move forward? Doesn't God want provision for daily needs? Absolutely. But it may just not be his timing. God's will also includes God's timing. So a locked door doesn't mean that the doors close forever. A locked door doesn't mean that you are in some kind of personal defeat or that you've done something wrong. A locked door doesn't mean that you'll never find resolution, though at the time it can feel that way. Instead, these closed doors teach us what we would never have learned any other way, and that is how to depend on God. We've all heard that phrase, you know, when God, when God closes a door, you know, he opens a window. Well, that's great, but what happens when you check the window and it's locked too? It may be that the Lord reveals his will in our lives just as much by slamming doors as he does by opening doors. It's part of how it works. And we read the chapters of our lives a lot like we read the chapters of the book of Acts, chapter by chapter. And we want to skip to the end and see how, how it all works out. When we're looking at the two points, we want to get from A to B fast and know how it all works out. But God doesn't do that. He reveals it to us in sections. Like when a novelist you know, would write, I think Dickens would often do this, he would uh, write his novels and he'd put them out in the newspaper kind of chapter by chapter. And he hadn't even written them yet. And he's, he's putting out you know, a chapter, he writes a chapter and puts it out. And that's kind of how we read our lives. It's not one book where we can skip to the end. We read it chapter by chapter. So if the Lord is closing a door on you, it could just be a matter of timing for you. You may discover that one day, if you just keep knocking, to use Jesus' command, keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking, you might discover one day, as Paul did, that the door's unlocked. Or you might discover, as Peter did, that he is preparing you for the future. So those two lessons, one more time. God's purpose for us includes the journey, not just the destination. And God's closed doors merely represent an essential part of his plan to move us forward. Let's pray. Our Father, we love efficiency. We can even find verses that justify it, that you want things done and you don't like waste. And yet, on the other hand, we can see in these passages that we've read that sometimes inefficiency from our perspective is the most efficient and effective way for you to work in our lives as you teach us to trust you, to have patience with you, and to realize that your sovereignty is what we're following and not our personal preferences. We can all identify with Peter's frustration or Peter scratching his head at the vision. We can all identify with Paul as one door slams in his face after another doing the very thing you've called him to do. 
But we can also identify with both of these brothers in our lives in hindsight. As we come on the other side of discovering why you would make us wait like you do to see that your purpose was not that you didn't want it to happen, you just wanted it to happen in your sovereign timing. Remind us today, Lord, to take a deep breath, to trust in your leading and your timing in our lives, and give us the freedom to relax, that you're going to make it happen when it's time, and we don't need to push, but we can wait on you. Thank you for these principles and for these essential reminders. Thank you for the sovereign control of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.